0: As data visualisation editor, the really interesting thing was even eight years ago, knowing that data was becoming an increasingly important part of the news agenda. And of course, as soon as COVID hits, you realise, oh, this is what we mean by this. You know, there are now stories that it's almost impossible to cover properly without using data and visual journalism techniques to tell them.
1: This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by Under 30s for the Under 30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. another episode of our talent show. This second series, as you know, is focused on uh, Financial Times experts. And today with us, we have the great honor to have Alan Smith, that is the head of visual and data journalism at the Financial Times, and is also a very inspiring teacher, speaker, and book writer. Alan, how are you today?
0: Yeah, very well. Thanks, Virginia. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's great to be here.
1: Your job title is so fascinating because it's something that has visual in it. Data journalism is something that, you know, in the last few years we are kind of used to know about, but visual data journalism and the visual part, I think it's quite important in this uh, social media infosphere. Um, how did you get here and how did you get to this job title?
0: It's a it's really interesting question, this, because I think I mean, particularly for people who are looking to develop their career, there's there's a couple of interesting things about my arrival at the FT. I joined uh, nearly eight years ago, and I was appointed as data visualisation editor at the time. Now, the, the most interesting thing, I think, about that job title was that it was the first time there'd ever been a data visualisation editor at the FT. So given that the history goes back to the 19th century You know, it's interesting to know that these organisations change all the time and they reflect all sorts of content trends. So um, as data visualisation editor, the really interesting thing was even eight years ago, knowing that data was becoming an increasingly important part of the news agenda. And of course, as soon as COVID hits, you realise, oh, this is what we mean by this. You know, there are now stories that it's almost impossible to cover properly without using data and visual journalism techniques to tell them. Um, So yeah, my my new job title from a few years ago is head of visual and data journalism. And what that really means is um, I'm leading a team of people. It's a very interdisciplinary skill set, right? There isn't just one type of data journalist or one type of visual journalist. We've got a a pool of people who have such different backgrounds. But that is suddenly becoming, you know, much more important to the sort of journalism that the FT produces.
1: Definitely when we're talking about having visuals to better explain and making basically our content a bit more accessible, your job, your team plays an amazing role and a crucial role. Do you have any examples of things that you saw really switching the kind of audience and reach thanks to the visual part?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a bit of a cliche, this, this sort of phrase, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. It's actually a bit of a cynical marketing term, that phrase. But there is some truth in the sense that you can probably engage with a much wider audience if you use things like visuals as a way of explaining topics that would otherwise be quite dry or difficult just using words alone um and if you think about the sort of coverage that the eft has given in the past few years to things like you know the war in ukraine or the the pandemic or things like you know u.s election these are stories now where people almost expect there to be visuals as part of that process you know like i think the reader appetite for visuals is now realizing that um you can't tell these stories through text alone. And and I think the key thing that's changed in recent years, actually, in this respect, is no longer is it just some visuals supporting the text that you would have written anyway. It's actually people realising that these visuals and these data assets are things that can be right at the centre of the story and you write around them, right? So it kind of flips the, the journalistic workflow on its head a little bit.
1: I think from a job market perspective, now it's kind of obvious we need roles like yours in a newsroom, as well as in a lot of other companies and industries. But I bet that when you started your career, it wasn't as clear as a career path that you could have been someone heading this side of journalism where you can really, you flip the camera and the perspective. How did you get there? How did you convince leaders and stakeholders in a newsroom that your role was needed?
0: So, I mean, that's a really interesting question, because my my undergraduate degree was in geography. And at that time, I had absolutely no real notion that journalism would be my end destination for my career. Um, My career path went in a very interesting direction, actually. I did a master's in what was effectively digital cartography, digital mapping. And soon after... Um, I, I I got a job at the uh, UK Statistics Office, the Office for National Statistics, which was to to create a data visualization uh, team there. Um, So for a long time, I was a civil servant, but kind of using the same techniques that we're now using at the FT, but just to broadcast government statistics to a a wider audience. And that brought me into contact with a lot of journalists over over the years Um, and kind of the realisation on my part was that careers were, the career pathways were sort of overlapping in a way that they hadn't done historically. It would have been very unusual to go from being a a, a civil servant for two decades to suddenly leading a team in the middle of a newsroom. But the skill sets involved in something like visual and data journalism are highly transferable. And so that allowed me to make that jump, Um, like I say, seven or eight years ago now.
1: I think this is so interesting for our listeners that are looking for, you know, inspiring career tips. Of course, you need to adapt, I guess, for on the cultural side. I think it's a bit different to work for a government compared to a newsroom. Um, would you like to describe a bit?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I do think this is fascinating, and particularly for those people now em- embarking on their careers kind of wondering about, you know, well, how should, how should my career unfold? How, what decisions should I take? The first thing that I'd sort of say is going back to what I said about me being the first data visualization editor. In fact, none of the jobs that I have held in the last 20 years existed when I was a student. So they're all things that have appeared. So so when I was a student, I'm so old that the World Wide Web was just being invented, right? So it didn't really so the idea about how the internet would affect my career pathway didn't really register while I was an undergraduate. And so what's happened after leaving university for me personally was the idea that you needed to keep learning all the time, right? Like you, you don't just suddenly launch out of university and then think, right, now I just go find my job. And then, you know, it's it's been a case of just kind of understanding how the world was changing and also using the value of my university education almost like the, the biggest value in that university education is the desire to keep learning, right? Like, because, um, you know, it's difficult to know what the world is going to look like in two years' time, let alone 10 years' time, right? So that makes it a very difficult job for universities to know kind of how how to um, how to prepare you for that. Um, when I look back, I think probably two of the things that I did immediately after leaving university that were definitely skills that I, I kind of have constantly... Um, revisited and, and reused. Um certainly learning to code after university was a very good decision because it allowed me to 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 keep active in, in lots of different ways that were valuable as far as the the web was developing and changing. So learning how to code was definitely good. But I think there was also like a sense of um learning how to the, the softer skills right like the softer skills about how to talk to people how to present to people how to negotiate and influence those are skills that in early on in my civil service career they were very keen to help people develop on 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 that side of their career pathway so um so i think that also put me in in a good place for kind of keeping relevant and um, when it comes to doing things like convincing yeah. sceptical news editors why, why a visual story is a good idea, those are good skills to have as well, those softer skills alongside the more technical skills.
1: Absolutely. And I think you just um, gave a, a key tip uh, for us, that is um, you don't have to have it all figured out When you finish studying in your TED talk, that I really recommend our audience to um, check online on YouTube and on the TED uh, website. You say that statistics is about us because of the etymology of the word is understanding the status of society, things and people. How how your passion for statistics um, started uh, from geography? And uh, what do you find so fascinating still now in your job for the community, for society that is highly related to the numbers?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really interesting. I I have had a love-hate relationship with maths and statistics. You know, and I'd hate people to think that I'm some sort of maths nerd, which I'm clearly not, actually. For me, a lot of this was... The, the journey along the ways helped kind of nurture this kind of love for, for what you do. I mean, I, the first thing I'd say about statistics is it's always had a slight reputation problem, right? Like for a lot of people, it's like even it's the bit of mathematics that even mathematicians don't like, right? Because it's rather than the rest of maths, which is all about precision and, and kind of detail, statistics is all about. Uncertainty and probability and it 's a bit fuzzier, um, but the thing that I loved and learned at the statistics office uh, about was just this ability to reflect who we are and how we 've changed and to kind of get that sort of sense of um of society that it's very difficult through any other means really and um so i i've i've always loved this ability to, to be able to, to look at data in particular and to be able to see things in it that either surprise you or correct a previous preconception or just kind of recalibrate someone's view or someone's opinion about what the world is like um, because we all see it through slightly different eyes and and stats are a great way of of bringing differing viewpoints together around kind of evidence and and kind of, uh, you know, um, informed debate, let's put it that way. I was at an event in Geneva a couple of weeks ago, which um, which was something called Project Rosling. It was about um, it, it something to do with the legacy of Hans Rosling, who's, uh, uh, who passed away a few years ago, but was famously positive about the good news that you can learn about the world through statistics, and his his contention was that actually we have far too negative a view of the world. Right? He basically was saying that, like, when you have a, a news industry that broadcasts the, the the unusual events, it doesn't leave you with much of a sense of what's normal. So, a lot of the things that we've done at the FT, I think, are in that space of you know answering through visuals and data a sort of sense of here's here's some information. And here's the context to know how to interpret it. Um, And uh, going back to Hans Rosling, a lot of this was about the fact that actually the world is much better than people think it is. You know, people live longer than they ever have done. um, You know, uh, that um, in general, society has progressed extraordinarily over the last few decades. And and we can see some of that in our statistics um, uh, regularly that we do at the FT.
1: As uh, we want to be a bit prescriptive uh, today, uh, it would be lovely to know how do you start from scratch a data visualization project in the newsroom? What do you do? What is it kind of like day-to-day activity that then lends into that beautiful and so interesting charts and data journalism that we find on FT.com and the FT paper?
0: That is a very difficult. It's a simple question, that Virginia, but it's very difficult to answer. I mean, the one thing I'd sort of say is that the thing that affects most, um, most importantly, what you do with a project in the newsroom is is how much time you've got to do it. Because if you're covering a story, I mean, let's take an example like you know the the, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Um, Uh, recently, you know, you're there on the day effectively reporting breaking news. And so the decisions that you make about how you're going to use visuals and data vary very differently compared to, say, a big investigative project that you're delivering over several months. Um, But the one thing that we've been trying to do as part of our sort of culture change on visuals and data is to kind of, start off by asking questions right like questions about you know what is it that you're what is the problem that you're trying to solve what's the question that you're trying to answer when it comes to visuals what is it that you're trying to show and these might seem like very simple questions but you'd be amazed how many people kind of generally bypass those things and go straight to the sort of i want a pie chart right well Let's unpick that a little bit. Why do you want a pie chart? Like, what are we actually trying to show? Can we trust this data? You know, is it reliable? What's the insight that we're trying to convey? So uh, kind of reframing whatever we're doing, whether it's like on, on a very fast news deadline or on a sort of bigger term project, thinking almost philosophically, what are we trying to say? I mean, we do that when we write paragraphs all the time, right? Like you structure a document and you, you you can kind of section it up very quickly. It's exactly the same sort of thing with visuals and data. You're still trying to use these assets to create a narrative and you need to be sure what is the narrative that we're creating, what's the question we're trying to answer.
1: I think it's very interesting as well to think about data journalism today and the different talent that you need to have in the newsroom. Um, What is the kind of um, skills that you look for someone to join your team or to be the future data journalist and someone that can support you properly? What is the skill set? What should be their passions and their backgrounds?
0: So, I mean, I think there although these skill sets are very different to what people would think of as traditional uh, journalism there's a lot of common threads there right so all of the things to do with curiosity and wanting to be able to tell stories and thinking about ways you know of telling a story they they endure right they they cut across whichever particular type medium you're working in um, and so, you know, we still like to to think, you know, in, historically in the past, if you'd gone to graphics teams in the newsrooms, everyone in those teams would have described themselves as, you know, graphic artist. Whereas what we really want people in our team to think of themselves more than anything else is a journalist, you know, just a journalist who's telling stories using a medium that they are, um, you know, much more proficient in um so there there's a core kind of core interest in the world the world around us telling stories um shaping narrative but then in sp- in terms of specific hard sets um what we uh, hard skill sets what we're really seeing now is much more specialization right in in terms of the makeup of my team it's one of the biggest teams in the newsroom we have people who've come to the team from Maybe statistical or data science backgrounds. Um, we've got people who write code and use statistical packages like R to do analyses. But then we also have people who have predominantly trained as artists, who are great illustrators, who can who can do great diagrams and illustrations and and uh, visual elements. Then we have developers. Um, We have uh, user experience, user interface designers. These are all things that are increasingly, like as with my job when I first arrived at the FT, these are not jobs that existed in the newsroom seven or eight years ago. And so one of the things that's now becoming increasingly important is when you have all of those disparate skill sets in the newsroom, having people who can bring those skill sets together and deliver them. And so project management, for example, is becoming an increasingly important skill. And um, Sam Joyner, who's our visual stories editor now, he's... One of the sort of, if you like, a a new breed of journalist in the newsroom who's marrying traditional journalistic elements with the ability to deliver on interdisciplinary projects that generates great output. And if, if you've seen any of the FT's visual storytelling projects recently, you can really see what I would call sort of greater than the sum of its parts journalism, like the stories that are being published couldn't have been created by any one individual who worked on that project but it's just the result of getting a group of talented people together and 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 to deliver something uh, amazing as a result
1: i think this is so interesting because this is really the late motive of this series is uh, discovering all the collaboration and interdepartmental beauty what is the project you're most uh, proud of that you
0: worked on Oh, that is a tough question. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think since I joined the FT, we've already been through maybe two or three iterations in the team's development that have, for me, been tremendously rewarding phases in the development of the team. I think one project that stands out from a, a couple of years ago, which was relatively early on in the pandemic, actually, but we we put together a collaborative project in the team as part of our series, uh, the sort of the end of the first wave of COVID series that the FT did. We did a story called um, COVID-19, the global crisis in data. And what that was, was a very early example, I think, of the sort of interdisciplinary model that I'm talking about now we had. It was delivered entirely from within the visual and data journalism team. Um, the writing as well as the visuals and the data analysis and the web development so it was one of the very early examples of the sort of model that we wanted to move to which was this team being seen as a proper journalistic unit it involved a lot of expertise from our data journalists that they had built up as part of following the covid beat it had visuals at the center of the story that, that, that the the, the, the The copy, the words were written around and structured around. Um, And it used things like video and charts in a way that really created impact, right? So it was almost like those were the first elements on the page and the the structure for the piece came from that. Um, And the thing that I'm most proud about that is that obviously, lots of news organisations everywhere around the world were covering COVID. It's quite difficult to create some content that stands out from the crowd. But when we published that piece, it really did attract a huge amount of positive feedback, not just from uh, regular FT readers, but from topic and domain experts that we'd done justice to the topic and that we'd thoroughly covered and explained what was still a very fast moving story. So um, I'm I'm pleased of, with that project in the, in the sense of what it did at the time. Time, but also, like I say, that it served, I think, in some ways as a model for what was to come, which was a whole kind of switching the tap on on a regular flow of that sort of story.
1: I think this is so interesting. I, I want to ask you a question um, that is about atomization of uh, content. I think um, your job and what your team does is um, possible to be packaged outside of the FT ecosystem, meaning that you can post it on Twitter, you can tweet about it, you can post it on social media. And sometimes, you know, the risks is that it doesn't lose context, but uh, the audience that gets, of course, with more reach and diversified because it's on a platform where we get volume, is, uh, um, is kind of like fascinated by that chart and that data piece, but is not connecting back to the FT world. Do you think it follows with uh, you know um loyal subscription behavior meaning they come to the FT thanks to this tool I believe so or like others say it makes uh, the content let's say enough and it gets digested by you know the social media platform hence the people then uh, don't subscribe to newspapers anymore
0: Wow. so this is this is a deep existential question My take on this is actually I think informed by the last few years of experience here. it's I think a very positive one actually in terms of, of of the role of our of our charts here in terms of kind of advice on using charts the biggest thing that I can the single piece of advice that I'd sort of say is that charts are not for just saying here's some numbers right? Um, And I think that if someone had told me that 30 or 40 years ago, I, I would have been much more confident from the outset. Charts are not for doing that. What they're very good at doing is saying, here's a pattern. Here's a relationship in some data that's important. And what we do, if you notice on FT charts, what we do with things like the titles of those charts, is to make it very, very clear what that pattern is. Right, so there will be in virtually every FT chart that you see, there will be a narrative title, almost like a headline, right, which makes the chart self-contained. Now, recent research in academia suggests that that title on a chart is one of the most important things on the chart itself. It's the thing that people will remember. It's the people. It's the thing that people will 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 uh, kind of work from. And as such, that makes it incredibly powerful on social media, because what it basically means is you can lift the chart out of your FT story. I would then kind of think of it rather than being a story, the chart itself is like a micro story. And it's that that makes it powerful on social media. It's self-contained. It's a micro story. It should be quite interesting. It allows you to get an audience on social media that maybe you're not getting um, just through regular FT.com. Um, But the payoff is really interesting because you're basically saying, here's an interesting insight. And for many people on social media, that's fine. That's all they need to know. But part of the sell from us is this is part of a bigger story come to FT.com if you want to know more. Um, and we definitely know that our charts on social media have de- have played a role in that space, encouraging some readers back to FT.com. We know that that form of journalism works particularly well with our younger audiences as well. So again, another good engagement um, metric there for us. Um, and so... The logical consequence of that is we're starting to see some of our journalists now, probably most notably John Byrne Murdoch, where you actually look at some of John's Twitter threads and realise... Those Twitter threads are all the evidence you ever needed that he was going to be a natural columnist, right? Because his his social media posts were effectively data-driven op-eds. And if you go see and read John's columns now on, on FT.com, they're just, uh, you know, built-out versions of those social media posts that explain a little bit more and obviously bring the conversation back onto FT.com. Um John's got a lot of followers on social media, but his value to FT.com is, is really important as well. So I think they can work in parallel and serve a much wider audience.
1: So for our news lovers out there and for people that are already practitioners in the news industry, do invest in visual and data journalism because it's key for driving new audiences and keep the ones you have engaged. Um, Last tips you would like to give to our audience, to our younger people out there. But let's say that um, someone is not as good with um, numbers. How would you go to approach maths with a bit of more of an agnostic, not preconceptions around this bad branding that maths and stats do have? What would be your how to guide on how to approach numbers? So let's say that you're very good at storytelling. You want to be a journalist, but numbers are key specifically for financial journalism. <laughs>
0: So, I mean, I think that the the misnomer is to think that you have to suddenly turn into some sort of maths uh, kind of uh, superstar. Um, I think the best thing that you can do really when it comes to thinking about how to work with data in your reporting is to just start to think a little bit critically You know, like a lot of journalists will be used to the idea that a PR will send them some snippet of data from a news release and and you might be tempted to use it. But those are often very good opportunities to practice a bit of critical thinking. You know, can I trust this data? Uh, What question did it ask the survey audience? Um, What question didn't it ask the survey audience? Who didn't they ask? You know, like all of those questions about just can I trust data they're not about working out figures to the fifth or sixth decimal degree it's just it's almost like a plausibility check about can I trust this data and does the insight that I think it shows is it really the insight that I that I want so um, critical thinking can be a, a great starting point From my perspective as well, one of the things that I really wanted to, when I was working with journalists, start to exploit was going back to this, you know, we would very often have, when I first arrived at the FT, this kind of sense of people arriving at the desk already knowing I want a pie chart, and what we've been trying to do is to sort of say, well, look, let's step back from there and think about what is it that you're trying to show, and when you actually get people to explain what it is that they're trying to show, it might need a completely different sort of visual or data treatment. So they, you know, people might say, um, you know, I want to show a surge in vaccinations in country X, right? That leads you down and all, you know, how can you tell it's a surge just in that country? How does it compare with other countries? How far back does the data go? That sort of thing. So just encouraging people to talk about what it is they want to extract and and communicate is really, really important. So um, we've developed a poster at the FT. I ought to give a flag for this because it's freely available. If anybody goes to ft.com forward slash vocabulary, We've created a big poster, which is designed to just kickstart that, that process of thinking about what it is that you want to show. It shows you a huge range of charts and shows you different types of options for uh, charts that you might use, depending on what it is that you want to show. Again, if somebody had shown me that 30 years ago, I'd probably got out of the starting blocks quicker. It's about building that confidence so
1: definitely check our show notes because we're going to post it there. As well as I know uh, you have the book that you have been writing.
0: Yeah, so so the, the book is a natural extension of the poster, actually. And so the poster, um, I do some training on data visualisation for the Royal Statistical Society. Um, the training course that I run there is based on the techniques that we use in the newsroom for visualising data. Um, when I was talking, every, every course that I've ever delivered you always wonder how transferable are these skills. You know, like I'm basing this on the experience of the FT, but you know, we have people on the course from academia and from government and from you know from private financial companies. You know, a huge spectrum of, of, of kind of interests. And always, I've been curious to know how transferable are what is what we're doing in the newsroom to these other organisations. And the answer, almost universally, is it's the same challenge everywhere. People in organisations everywhere are feeling a little bit drowned in data. And and They need to have some recipes for dealing with it and for knowing how to extract useful things and discard not so useful things. So the book kind of builds out from that poster that I was talking about. And it's really designed to try and boost chart literacy and an understanding of lots of different types of charts, not just the ones you learned when you were five or six in, in sort of preschool or whatever, um, and so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we, we, we'd be thrilled if people found the book useful. But like I say, first stopping point is probably the visual vocabulary poster.
1: Now we're going to welcome in the podcast studio two challengers. So two people that took part to our um, hackathon experiences in the past few years that are asking you, directly some questions to learn more from you. We have Belen from Italy and uh, Sofia from uh, uh, Spain. So, Belen, uh, what about you? Uh, when uh, did you join uh, the FT Challenge Experience? So, I actually joined the FT just last year. I did the Made in Italy Challenge and now I'm a master's student of management at Imperial College Business School. Um, so, I watched your 2017 TEDx talk, very interesting. And uh, actually, my question was referring to that. So uh, in the TEDx talk, you mentioned the low numeracy skills numbers that was published by the OECD study. And I wanted to ask you, how do you think that the current educational system could better integrate the teaching of statistics and the importance of data into its curriculum, but not only integrating it, but making it actually enjoyable?
0: <laughs> oh, that is such a good question. I mean, I, I think I think the thing that frustrates me most, I mentioned the course that I teach at the, at the RSS. Um, it's almost like teaching that course is a sign for me that something has gone wrong earlier in the education system you know like I have people who are employed as professional analysts for example on these courses and when I say to them things like at the start of the course put your hand up if you've ever been taught how to present data they say no I never have and I think I mean there's lots of reasons for that. So the, the the low levels of numeracy is kind of a part of that. But I think that there are sort of deeper systemic issues, which I think happily now we're seeing some signs of being addressed. But to give you an example, we're very keen on separating people into arts or science tracks at university, right? And and the way that I've sort of cynically interpreted this is that if you go down the arts track traditionally, that's been like your little waiver to say I don't need to bother with data or numbers anymore. Um, because I'm an artist and I'm, you know, I'm going to work in the arts. And then similarly, people disappear down the sciences route and they might become incredibly numerate and, uh, and and scientifically literate, but they might not be taught how to present that to anybody other than their peers, right? So, so what we end up with is a bit of a barrier where we've got people who have varying degrees of comfort. And like I say, I think if we could reposition things like, you know, statistics, I mean it suffered such a bad reputation over the years, partly because it was taught like Latin, right? Like you couldn't really get to use it until you'd wrote, learned certain techniques to to use it. Whereas if you get children talking about you know, the differences in their local communities and the things that they see in the world and how they relate to their own lives, you know, that can be the lens that you explore statistics through. Then it becomes absolutely fascinating and interesting. And I don't think we've been particularly good at doing that as a society historically. So um, so I think the answer to your, the shorter answer to your question is it needs to happen earlier. We need to get people curious and excited earlier and then great things will come of it, I think.
1: Thank you, Alan. Sophia. Uh, So my name is Sophia, I'm Spanish, and I joined the FT community through the FT Bocconi Challenge in 2022, currently doing an internship here, and I'm loving it. And my question for you, Alan, is how do you avoid conveying your personal biases and opinions uh, through the data visualizations that you do, mostly when it contains either political or controversial um, matters?
0: So, I mean, I I think that's a really good question because I think the honest answer would be that there's no way of guaranteeing, like with any journalism, that that there's an instant recipe to avoid doing, to to fall into that trap. Um, I think there are probably, again, some techniques that you can use about the way that you use data that can really help tease some of that out. So, for example, I've spoken to plenty of sort of career journalists who've described their historic use of data. Maybe they come up with an idea for a story and then they search for data that supports that idea. Right. And, you know, that it may well be that that's a very, you know, that the the end story is is fine and reliable and so on. But it could also be that you've just cherry picked some data to support a biased or prejudiced opinion. So I think one of the things that you're seeing now with the new generation of data journalists is that they're approaching the way that they use data in much more of a sort of academic sense where you know traditionally in an academic environment you kind of set a hypothesis right like and or a, or even a null hypothesis and then you you test data to see whether or not that hypothesis is supported or not. If you start off with a question of, you know, does a does an increase in government spending, increase productivity, then you've got a question to answer rather than the answer already being predetermined, right? So so I think the simple answer is, um, you know, slightly more academic approach to how you use data and test it against ideas is probably a good idea. Um, And again, I I go to John Byrne Murdoch for this. He's got a great, he kind of described a lot of his work as social science on a deadline. Um, which I think does a slight disservice to academics because they've always had deadlines. But I think what he really means is that like much tighter deadlines, right? Being able to execute that sort of story idea um, using that sort of approach at pace. um, And that's a much more reliable way of being able to use data.
1: Thank you, Belen. Thank you, Sophia. But above all, thank you, Alan, for all your tips, for uh, being so open about your journey um, to this wonderful and so interesting world of uh, uh, visual and data journalism. Alan, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stagni. Our podcast producer, editor, and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening.